Hi, Bridgeway, it's Pastor Lance, and boy, are you in for a treat. I got another message of encouragement coming to you today. So if you're feeling a little bit low, man, you're gonna be all filled up by the time we get done with this message. We're gonna be in God's Word, and we're gonna be jumping back once again into our series. We've been going through this year, 2020, the year of connecting, and we are going to go into our series, Connecting with God, and we're in part 16. Part 16, I entitled today's message, The Gift that Keeps on Giving. The Gift that Keeps on Giving. And I'm gonna give you the fill in the blank here in a moment, but I just wanna uh, make a couple comments and ask you a question right here at the beginning. And that is this, do you know why Christians are saved? Do you know why you and I are saved? Is it simply because it's protection for the end of the world? Is it just to get us next to God? The answer to that is yes, but not just. That is not the only reason, or those are not the only reasons why we are rescued and saved and transformed and born again. They are not the only reasons why we are the way we are. You see, we have eternal life and it has implications now. You know, I've been saying throughout this whole series that eternal life is not simply a matter of what? Quantity, that it's a long time or forever. It is that, but it's more than that. It is a quality of life that we refer to eternal life as spiritual life, meaning that we are alive right now because we are connected to God. Salvation and connection is for now. The church... Big C Church, all believers, time-wide, worldwide, the believers in the church have things to do. Christians have things to do. We have things to do. Our connection with God starts at the moment we have a relationship with him. It does not begin when we die. That our eternal life, our eternal existence, our walking with God forevermore begins here in this life. That fill in the blank on the app in front of you, maybe you got that fired up. We're gonna put that also on some of our chat features. Connection means effectiveness. Connection means effectiveness. In this series, we've been talking about the importance of connection with God and all the things that it means. And this week, connection means effectiveness. Where we left off last time that we were together is that we had already been very excited about the fact that once we were dead in our sins, Jesus came and scooped us up, that he did for us what we could not do. We were celebrating that last time that we were together. We had this kind of big victory message where we were talking about how good Jesus was and how he did so many extraordinary things and lavished love upon us. So we're gonna continue that type of conversation again today in this message, we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. Give you a chance to kind of find that there in your Bible. We're going to be studying this in depth, but to set our context, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 8 through 10, then we'll go back and tear it apart line by line. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace, Paul says, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That sure sounds like a lot. How about we pray for the word? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would allow your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and illuminate the scriptures, that everything that you have for us, we would have. That God, that we might be able to put the pieces together and connect the dots and wisdom might flow into our life from your heart to ours. We pray, Lord, that whatever we learn here at this time, that we would put it into play, that we would make it a part of our lifestyle, that it would not merely be academic, but it would be transformational. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so let's get into it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We'll start back at the beginning. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, we talked about that a little bit last week, so let me bring you up some reminders here what grace is. Grace is unearned favor. It's a present you get, but you don't necessarily earn it or deserve it. It means that God is so loving that out of his goodness, he came up with the idea to bless us with a present. That's what grace is. Now, the flip side of that coin is mercy. The Bible refers to grace and mercy a lot, almost simultaneously and sometimes interchangeably, but he connects them together. So grace is God just being so loving, he wants to give you a present. Mercy, on the other hand, is that you deserve something bad, but because of the love in God's heart, you don't end up getting that penalty. It's a let you off even though you deserve it thing. That's what mercy is. All right, so let me say it again. He tells this very important statement, which I would suggest to you that is at the core of theology. Paul said this, for by grace, by that unearned gift, you, meaning Christians, those that call Jesus their Lord and Savior, have been saved. We talked a lot about that last week, about the idea that it's a past fact that has continued importance for us and creates a new reality. For by grace, you have been saved, but it adds something else, through faith. Now, let me say, we have been rescued by the grace of God. When we didn't have God in mind or a heart to follow him, while we were caught up in our own little worlds of selfishness, because God is so loving, he initiated a plan to rescue us from our sin and the penalty that comes from it. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world and made it possible for people to be saved. God set up a system of grace. He didn't have to. He wanted to. That's so important. But it says that that grace, that gift, that free offer of what Jesus did on the cross is activated by faith. Why is that important? Because, listen to this, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but the whole world isn't going to heaven. Why? Because they aren't activating their gift. They are not connecting that gift with their heart. 
Jesus Christ did all the heavy lifting, but there is not a belief, there is not a faith, there is not a connection, there is not a relationship to activate it and make it alive. Faith means trust. Faith means living as if what you believe is so real that you alter your life because of it. Faith is a critical component in the Bible. It talks about it this way. It says, do you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? When we use the word believe, it's not just that you kind of know some idea about it. Faith doesn't mean that you're kind of into it. Faith and belief in the Bible are synonymous terms that mean that you are absolutely convinced that it is a fact. Hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about faith. Faith in what? If we activate our salvation by faith, faith in what? Faith in our salvation? No. Faith that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he would do. That's what we have faith in. So let's talk about uh, what faith might mean practically, because we all operate by faith every single day. Every time you sit down in a chair, you have faith that the chair is gonna hold you up. Every time you drive through an intersection, you have faith that the traffic light is going to cause everybody else to do their job, right? We are operating by faith all the time. You operate by faith whenever you spend money, assuming that there's a backup for that money, and it goes on and on and on. But I wanna talk about a little bit more extreme faith. Now, back in 2010, there was a commercial. And I have to admit, I totally fell for it. Only in my research did I realize it is bogus. Now, you can always go to uh, myth-busting type sites like Snopes.com and stuff like this to find out. Well, I didn't do any of that until recently. And for the longest time, I thought it was real. So back in 2010, a famous tennis player by the name of Roger Federer uh, did a Gillette commercial. It ended up going viral. And in that commercial, he was doing a photo shoot and somebody said, hey, do you think you could hit this bottle off this guy's head? Well, it looks absolutely seamless, like it's all one take. And what he does is he takes a tennis racket. Now he's in a suit jacket with a button up shirt, right? So it's not exactly like his tennis attire. And he then throws up the ball and smashes it and it knocks the bottle right off the guy's head. And he goes, all right, let's do it again. So the guy puts the bottle back up on his head, wham, right inside a studio. And it is coming about 100 miles an hour at this guy's face. Now, I absolutely thought that was true. Found out, no, it is not. <laughs> Later on, Roger Federer admitted, although it might be possible for him to do that, that one was not. That was actually a trick that they ended up playing where they pulled the bottle off the guy's head. Now, the reason why I bring this up is that later on, James Corden, the, the night show uh, show host, did that with Andy Murray. Now, Andy Murray's another tennis star, and he said, hey, let's recreate it. Now, he didn't know if it was real or not real, but Andy Murray was super nervous, so he's a tennis star, and they had, they had James stand up in front of this white wall, and he protected himself, and he had eyes cut out and his mouth cut out with a little tiny screen in front of his face just so they wouldn't permanently damage him because he was about to hit the ball really hard. And he let Andy Murray do it. And let's just say it didn't work till they did it six times and even then it was a little bit sketchy. <laughs> but here's my point. How much faith 
do you need to have to let a guy hit a ball about 80 to 100 miles an hour at your face, right? I mean, that's a lot of faith. Now, here's what's intriguing about this. When I uh, had my little girls, I remember so many different times I was in the pool and sometimes my girls were a little nervous about jumping in the pool. And so I would tell them as babies, I would say, come to daddy. And they would look around and all the circumstance was scary. But then they would look at me and they would jump. Why? Because despite what they saw in their circumstances, they knew what the character of their dad was and that their dad wouldn't tell them to do that if he didn't know for sure. And so they jumped. Isn't that powerful? What if we did that with God? That we had so much confidence in God's nature that when he tells us something, we believe it's true and we live as if it's true. We're even willing to risk as if it's true because although the circumstances don't look right, he has proven himself over and over and over to be faithful. I pulled this quote out from uh, a guy in the 19, early 1900s. He was a Presbyterian New Testament scholar named J.G. Macon. J.G. Macon, he said this. He said, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust him. The greater our progress in theology, that's the study of God, the simpler and more childlike will be our faith. I thought that was super cool. Of course, I'm a big theology nut, right? So I love that idea that the more you study God and understand his nature, the more it transforms us and we can become more simple and more childlike. It also reminded me when we were talking about faith, it reminded me of the story of Noah. I think that for too many of us, we look at the story of Noah building this boat, right? This big, huge, what we call an ark. We look at that almost as a story of tenacity where it's God told him, Everything was clear and he said, hey, I want you to build a boat, gave him directions. And basically Noah just had to follow through. And I don't think that's what the story is about. I think the story is a faith story. Let me give you an example. Here's why. First of all, how many times did Noah doubt he heard that right? Now we go, well, hold on. He got a bunch of uh, measurements and all this stuff. So God was clearly articulating to him. Okay. I'm not doubting that. What I'm telling you is you have had experiences with God that in the moment were, there was no doubt attached to it. You were absolutely locked in and convinced. How long was it until you started doubting that experience? So let's say he does get this whole download and he wrote it down. Did God come to him in a dream? Did God come to him in a vision? Did God talk to him audibly? We don't know, but I'll tell you this. After he wrote it down, you gotta wonder how many times he went back and was like, did I just make that up? Like, was that a real thing? I'm building a boat when we don't need a boat and it's massive. Here's another element to it. He is building a boat in a land that has never had rain. So if you're not building it in the water, you're building it on land. Where are you gonna get that into the water? What do you got that's gonna pull something that large? In other words, if the water doesn't come to you, the boat doesn't make any sense. That means it needs to rain or flood, but the Bible articulates it had not rain on the earth at that time. The cloud layer was so thick, everything was so built up because it didn't need to rain. But God was about to change that. How many times did he doubt it going, man, a boat sure looks stupid here in a land with no rain? Then, let me give you another piece. You know how long it took him to build it? 
Most scholars believe approximately 75 years. How many times in the 75 years when people walked by and told him, hey, Noah, that's a stupid boat. What are you doing? How many times did he doubt himself and his family and everybody that was working on it, even the workers he may have hired, that what they were doing was foolishness? But he kept going. Then here's another piece. God said, I want you to get in the boat and I'm going to lock you in. So he gets in with his wife, his three sons, and their wives. There's only eight people in the boat. God locks the door. And this is the part that I don't think anybody ever highlights. The rain didn't start for seven more days. For a week, they're sitting in a boat on dry land and there's no rain. That is so awkward. How many times did the family go, okay, dad, I gave you a couple days. They didn't know it was gonna be seven days. They assumed it would have been immediate. Why would he lock them in early? So how many times do they have to have a family conversation of going, at what point do we just open the door and get out and go, man, we heard him wrong. But Noah hung in there. You know how many days he was on the ark? Approximately 360 days, a full year. How many times was he wondering, am I ever going to get off this thing? Are we going to capsize? What's going on in the world is unprecedented. So much fear, so much turmoil, so much wondering. And he just hung in there with God. And then finally, they get out. You got to imagine he looks around and he says, it's just us. The entire world has been wiped clean. The animals I brought, my wife, and her, she and I are older, and my three sons and their daughters. What, we're gonna repopulate the earth? How many times did he say, God, are you sure you got this right? You see, that story is faith after faith after faith. It means that he heard from God and he considered it a lock and he transformed his whole life and bent it all around that truth. That is how I feel about Christianity. I have taken my wife and my daughters and any family members that agree with me and I have said, let's bend our entire lives around the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. I am 100% convinced it is a fact in my mind, just as much as anything else that I have. Do I doubt sometimes? Of course. Are there times that I go, man, am I just making all this stuff up? Yeah, I'm human. That's kind of the point. Faith means you don't have it as fact yet. You're treating it as fact until you get it. Do you realize this whole concept of grace that God brought in, that we activate with our faith, do you realize that grace by nature is anti-religion? Grace is anti-religion. Religion is man's effort to reach God. It is doing good things to earn your way into the place of deity. Grace means you're never going to earn anything. I have to give it to you or you're never going to get it. Grace and Christianity is anti-religious system. It is not a religion. It is a relationship and a rescue. Let's go ahead and keep moving forward in Ephesians. We're still in that verse 8 there. Obviously not going super fast. Sorry about that. He said this, you were saved by grace through faith, and then what? And this is not your own doing. Paul's talking to Christians. You didn't do this. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. So right off the bat, you didn't do it, you didn't earn it, this is not about you, God did it all. It is a gift, not a reward. Many of us practically live out our faith as if our salvation is a reward of good behavior. If we do enough good things, God's gonna love us enough. I wanna remind you, God loves you total now. If it wasn't a gift, it would never happen. You don't have enough good points to have a reward. That's just not how it works. And it's important to understand that it's a gift and not a reward for two basic reasons. Number one, it removes the possibility of pride. We'll get into that. But number two, if we didn't earn it, then we aren't trying to keep it. Did you hear me? So some of us feel like we were saved by grace and we maintain it by works. We, keep, we were saved by God's kindness, but now we do religion to hang on to it. Do you understand that that's not correct? It was created by grace and it's maintained by grace. It is God's love all the way through. As a matter of fact, Paul clarifies, he said, it is not through good works. We cannot do enough good things to get into heaven because the standard is absolute perfection. That's why religion can't work. Our good stuff isn't good enough, right? So here's what good works are. When we talk about that, it's just a fancy way of saying this. Good works are anything good that we do. It's being nice to other people. It's being unselfish. It's being kind. It's praying for people. It's sharing our resources with them. It's loving people through action and behavior. All that is good stuff. Anything good that you can do would be called in the Bible a good work. He said, you're not earning your salvation through that good stuff. Now, I want to clarify something. Because I said that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but only some have activated it by faith. And you go, wait, 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 isn't that a good work? No, it's a response. A good work means that you went through the process to create it for God. That's not how it works. When he called us and rescued us, we just lifted up our arms from drowning and he picked us up. That's not a good work. God does the good works, we do the responses. Yes, we need to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, yes. We need to be able to pray and confess and repent from our sins, yes. We need to give our lives over to him and treat him like the king he is. Those are not good works, they're reality. We keep thinking that we should get credit for following Jesus when that is just what you were built for. It's just what I was built for. It's just how we're supposed to be. You don't get extra credit for being human. You're just human. Well, in the same way, the idea of treating God like king when he's already the king and he's already the God, then you're not getting extra credit for that. That just is what it is. All we've done is be rescued. So here's what he said. There is no room for boasting. There is no room for boasting, you didn't do it. Why does Paul say that twice? Why is he so insistent on this point? It's because human nature is so quick to get prideful about stuff and create classifications of people. In other words, we always wanna create the haves and the have nots. If I did something awesome, I'm better than somebody else. We play games of comparison. We are always looking for someone or something that we've done that we can feel good about. We are looking for what? 
We're trying to get control of our lives. But when we realize that Jesus initiated the plan for salvation before we even showed up in the world, it puts all the value on him and takes the responsibility away from us. Jesus paid it all. Don't get me wrong. There is stuff for us to do, and that's what I want to focus on. But we do good works because we're saved. We don't do good works to be saved. Does that make sense? Once we are alive and active and connected into the divine and plugged in and spiritually alive, we are now pumped and ready to get some stuff done. So sure enough, that's where the next verse goes into. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We are made by God. If you can take a human being and look at their little tag, right, on the back, it says made in whatever, made by God. That's it. When we have an object that's made by a master, you call it a what? A masterpiece. This word poema in Greek, that's this concept. We were made by the hands of God. That if we could only grasp the idea of what it means to be made by God, to have his image put into us, to be touched by his very hands, to have his life breathed into our bodies, we would start to have a totally different identity. The Christian identity, and I talk about this an awful lot, the proper, the proper position and posture of a believer should be confident humility. Confident because God doesn't make garbage. We should feel confident about the glory that he's put within us. We should feel confident about the power that he's given us and the authority that he's given us. We should feel confident about our relationship with God and our forgiveness and our grace. But humility means it's not about us, so we don't spend so much time thinking about ourselves or thinking about God and other people. You see, there's no room for arrogance, but there's great room for confidence. But there's always room for humility. And there's never room for arrogance. We are his workmanship. Why? Look at this. Still verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that say? It said that we were created in Christ Jesus. That means we were born again by what Jesus Christ did on the cross and we were fused together with him in our new life. We were created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. We were built and saved to be effective for the kingdom of God. We were built to be fruit bearing. If we talk about good fruit, the idea that you would plant a vineyard for what? For fruit to come out of it. God plants a Christian so that what? Good works would come out of us. There should be a harvest in the lives of Christians. We were built to be fruit bearing. Good works that are really good in God's eyes are called fruit. God designed us for production in the kingdom of God. God designed us for this stuff before we even got here. God had eternal plans that when we would become Christians, we would join him in his action and what he was doing. We partner with things that are way over our head. We engage in a process that started before mankind started. 
And God has a ton of stuff that he wants to do and he wants us involved in it. So when we get saved, we immediately have a role and responsibility and gifts and abilities. Man, if you are a Christian today, you are prepped and ready to be effective for the kingdom of God. You go, oh man, I got a lot of hangups, I got a lot of... The point of our salvation is partly to be fruitful. You keep looking at your limitations when we should get our eyes on the power of God. You keep talking to yourself about what you can't do without getting your eyes focused on what God can do. Peter wasn't supposed to be able to walk on water, but when Jesus was on the water, he walked on water too. There were so many things that people weren't supposed to be able to do. You shouldn't just look in your own pockets for your resources because you have dual citizenship, so you are here and up there. In other words, you're pulling resources from here in your own pockets, but you also have spiritual pockets that you're pulling down from, so don't sell yourself short as if, oh, poor little me, I'm limited. God is not limited. The Bible says that we are but jars of clay. The point is not the vessel on the outside, but what's in the vessel on the inside. If the Holy Spirit is within you and you are not a Christian, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in immediately. That's how Jesus gets into our hearts. It's through the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit that is legit. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you are full of power and potential. The whole point is fruitfulness. We keep thinking that we have to convince God to release his power into our lives. We keep acting like we have to convince God that we want to do something for him. And hey, God can give us a little something. It was his idea in the first place for us to be Fruitful, active, powerful, transformational. All right, let me close out with this. Are you as excited about what God wants to accomplish in you as he is? Are you as excited about what God wants to accomplish in you as he is? Because God's all excited about the potential of what he can do through you. I'm not sure you're living up and understanding how much he really built into you. It's pretty extraordinary. You, I, Christians, were built for great things. Don't let any other voices tell you otherwise. Don't let your insecurity hold you back. Don't let your own small thoughts stop you from the big thoughts of God. Don't let your limitations limit your impact. Amen? Some of us need to read the Bible through an identity lens and really begin to grasp how amazing God made us. Remember, it's not about us, it's about Him and what He did in us and what He's doing through us. God should always get all the glory, but the whole idea of thinking that you are nothing and that you are worthless is a lie from the enemy. I'm not gonna allow that into my head. I was built by God. If I'm built by God and he doesn't make junk, then I have a purpose. If truly the Holy Spirit is within me, like I believe with everything that I have, that means that I have power and authority that is beyond
beyond this world. I live in two realities. I live in the natural and I live in the supernatural. That is the same thing for you. As a Christian, you are connected as partners with the divine. That means we are no longer merely human. Yes, we are fallible and messed up and God is still fixing the outside, but from the inside out, he is doing transformational, extraordinary things. So don't let the enemy tell you any different. God has made you, and he made you to do amazing things. Believe that deep in your heart. You know what? I think that's a lot of encouragement for us today. I sure hope that you walk away from this message feeling fired up because God's got stuff to do, and he wants to do it with you. I love you all. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you next time.